Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Advocates Academy. The Advocates Academy is brought to you by the Women and Gender Resource Center at the University of Alabama. I'm Lizzie Smith, and I'm your host. The Advocates Academy is a podcast for students, faculty, and staff who are looking for ways to engage in advocacy and social justice work on their campus, in their career, and in their day-to-day lives. Today, we're speaking with Brittany Gregg to discuss accessibility advocacy in higher education. Brittany is the Assistant Director of the Office of Disability Services and a PhD student in higher education administration. In this episode, we'll talk about inclusion, classroom accessibility, student advocacy, coalition building, and the importance of educating ourselves about the narratives of people with disabilities. Thanks for listening. everybody. We're here today with Brittany Gregg, and she's going to talk to us about ways to advocate for people with disabilities and to make your advocacy and your day-to-day work and life on campus more accessible to more folks. So I'm going to go ahead and ask Brittany. Hello, Brittany. Would you uh, take a minute and just tell us about yourself? Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, So I'm Brittany Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I identify as a presently able-bodied person. I have worked in the Office of Disability Services at UA for two years now, and this is my eighth year working in this field. Um, I'm also a doctoral student in the higher education program at UA, um, and my research uses critical disability studies to examine ableism in education. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, for those of you listening, you may not know, but Brittany and I are in the same program. So we've yes. taken classes together <laughs> um, and suffered suffered through the, the trials and tribulations of a PhD student. Um, <laughs> we could do a whole different um, episode on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> we definitely could. All right. Uh, So today we're talking about ways that folks can advocate for people with disabilities. And before we get into that, I want to make sure that we all kind of have a general understanding of what a disability is. So Brittany, can you can you define that for us? Can you tell us what what constitutes a disability? Sure. Um, So we tend to think of visible things when we think about disability, like Um, someone who is blind or deaf or someone who uses a mobility device. But it's important to remember that disability is fluid, intersectional, and contextual. What I mean by that is disability changes across time and context. So a person might have an impairment that is always present, but it may not always pose a disability or limitation in that person's life. Mm. To use a mobility example, um, someone may have an impairment for which they use a wheelchair, but they may not be disabled by their environment as long as that environment is accessible. So context such as the environment matters, um, but also time because the nature of an impairment can change over time instead of remaining fixed or static. Um, it's also important to remember that disability intersects with other social locations and identities, such as race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion, age, class, etc. Um, 
So disability studies helps us understand disability in these ways. Um, but the medical model of disability is what most people are familiar with. And under the medical model, disability is seen as diagnosable and able to be categorized. And so that's where we get labels that people are familiar with, like ADHD, learning disorders, autism, depression, anxiety, etc. Um, and when we look specifically at the Americans with Disabilities Act, we get that medical model presented um, because disability is considered to be um, a diagnosis that causes a um, functional limitation in a major life activity. So we get kind of this like legal medical definition, um, which is what most people are going to be familiar with, but it's very important to remember what disability studies teaches us as well. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, and within that vein, just to, to make sure that I'm kind of clear on, on what you're saying, um, for folks who have a disability that doesn't fit into one of those categories, does it make it more difficult to access resources? It can, for sure. Um, you know, there are people who may experience, um, you know, impairments that pose limitations in certain circumstances. Um, but if they don't rise to the level of diagnosis, of, of it being mm -hmm. diagnosable, then that certainly can prevent them from accessing certain services and resources. And so that's where, you know, the, we've, we have to critique the medical model because mm -hmm. it can be very limiting in that way. You know, if you don't meet a set of criteria that someone has determined, you know, makes, you know, makes you meet this diagnosis. And if you, yeah. if you don't meet that, then that can, um, that doesn't mean that, that you don't have a disability, um, but it, it can prevent you from accessing certain things for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I think that that's, that's something to be aware of too, especially for folks who uh, work with students or work with other folks who may or may not have disabilities. Um, when we talk about accessing resources, it is entirely possible that you could find yourself in a position where you need to advocate for somebody who finds themselves in that middle ground. Um, Cool. And uh, can you tell me why, why is it important to be conscientious of the perspective and the needs of people with disabilities as an advocate? Yeah. Um, we live in, and we've all been socialized in, an ableist world. And that means each of us have been socialized or brought up under this ideology that able-bodied and able-minded people are valued, and it's what we would consider the norm. And so people with disabilities are often thought of as the opposite of that, as abnormal or needing to be cured or as having special needs. When really the needs of people with disabilities aren't special at all, they just seem that way because we live in a society designed and built for people of certain abilities. So it's important for us to think about ableism, which is the circulation of the oppression and exclusion of people with disabilities. And it permeates all of our social institutions. And it's what leads to ability privilege among the normalized group, or in this case, people who don't have a disability. And so because we've all been socialized in this way, 
it's important for us to examine our assumptions about people who do have disabilities, um, about ability in general, and to consider the perspectives and experiences that are different from our own. Um, In particular, the perspectives and narratives of people with disabilities have historically been silenced. So one thing we can all do is educate ourselves about this history and start to recognize the ways that ableism operates around us. Um, So that's very important for advocacy. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that a lot of folks who are interested in advocating for marginalized identities oftentimes forget or overlook the identities that they see less often. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so those happen to be the ones that tend to be the most invisible and to experience the most erasure. Yes, um, and, and usually that means that they're some of the ones that need advocating for the most mm-hmm. because they don't have access um, to, you know, that, that seat at the table, that opportunity to have, have those conversations about their perspective. So I think that that's a really great point to make about one of the best things we can do as advocates is to seek out uh, people with experiences different from us and to seek to learn about their experience and to um, and to give them an opportunity to have a voice. Um, Cool. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, Great. So along with that, I think that another challenge that a lot of folks have when it comes to advocating for folks with disabilities is, is just a basic language barrier. Um, it's not knowing how to say the right thing, how not to say the wrong thing, and how to have these conversations in a way that's respectful. And so sometimes that like that desire to, to be respectful and to be uh, and, and to use the right language can create a barrier for folks who'd like to advocate because they're afraid that if they try to, they're gonna do it incorrectly, uh, which means that oftentimes we just you know, avoid entirely and don't sure. do anything at all. So can you, can you give us some tips for overcoming this? How can people who are afraid to say the wrong thing, use the wrong term, um, how, how can they learn about respectful, accessible language? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think, you know, in, in answering this question, it's important to acknowledge that language and identity are very subjective. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, people that we may think of as having a disability, they may or may not personally identify with that. Um, Mm -hmm. a good example to bring up here is the deaf community. So, um, people who are deaf, they really see themselves as more of a cultural minority as opposed to a group of people with disabilities. Um, Mm -hmm. and again, this relates back to ableism because, the world is designed for people who are hearing. And so Mm -hmm. deaf people view themselves culturally as a group that communicates differently um, rather than viewing themselves as disabled. Um, Another thing to, that kind of relates here is, you know, people are starting to talk more about the use of person first language. Um, Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, we would say things like wheelchair user as opposed to saying that someone is confined to a wheelchair. Um, Right. Yes. Or we would say like, you know, this person has diabetes instead of describing them as a diabetic. Um, One, there are always exceptions to this though. So one (laughs) exception is many people within the autism community, they prefer to refer to themselves as autistic. 
they are proud to use that language to describe um, that part of their identity. And so I shared these different examples just to make the point that we never truly know how a person identifies or what language they prefer unless we ask or get to know them. But there are some general practices that we can follow in using respectful language. And so I already mentioned person-first language, Mm -hmm. um, and that that includes saying people with disabilities as opposed to the disabled or people with special needs. And so throughout, I will try to kind of um, model that person-first language, um, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely something that we can all do um, to communicate respect. Um, Because of ableism, you know, people who are able-bodied or minded often don't think of themselves as having an ability status, similar Mm -hmm. to the way that white people may not see themselves as having a racial identity. So if you are someone who identifies as able-bodied or minded, you can refer to yourself using those terms, Um, but you can also use the term temporarily or presently able-bodied, which acknowledges the ways that ability is fluid and can change over time. Um, And then I'll also just kind of share, you know, a personal example. There have definitely been times where I've made assumptions about, you know, how people um, identify in terms of like their gender identity, for example. And there Mm -hmm. have been times where I personally have misgendered someone um, Mm -hmm. in in speaking to or or about someone. And, you know, those things happen. And I think it's important to, um, you know, acknowledge when that happens, apologize for it and move forward. And so I just share that to say, too, that, you know, don't let that fear kind of stop you from interacting with someone um, or advocating for someone um, because we are all human and we all make mistakes. And so it's a if if anything ever happens where you feel like you've used language, um, you know, inappropriately without meaning to, um, that's a learning experience. And. Um, and so, yeah, I would just kind of add that as well. Yeah, no. And I, I love the fact that you bring that up because, um, I have, I have also been in places like, or, or times in my life when I have accidentally misgendered somebody or used the wrong language to describe a person just because I didn't know, like, I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I made an assumption and it was incorrect. Right. Um, that happens, I think to all of us. Yes. And, and I think that when it comes to you know, talking to people who are different from us, so often people have this fear that they can't make a mistake, mm-hmm. that if they make a mistake, that makes them a bad person or that they're, that the person that they, you know, interact with will immediately dislike them and think that they're horrible. Um, but, but it's so important to remember that all any of us can do is our best and we are human and we do make mistakes. And when it comes to learning about identities and learning about people who have different experiences from us, we have to remember that we are learning and when we learn, we make mistakes and that's okay. Um, and so I think that, yeah, the, the key takeaways um, that, that I've always kind of tried to emphasize to people and that I've learned for myself are to make best intentions known, to approach the situation as a learning person um, and to, you know, be able to accept those mistakes personally um, apologize for them and move on and do 
do my best to do better the next time without yeah. internalizing it too much. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, Brittany. Um, okay. So once we've gotten over our fear of saying the wrong thing, which for those of us with anxiety never goes away. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> but let's say we've gotten over that and we want to take some tangible action. We want to do some things in our day-to-day lives and in our advocacy work that can make the world more accessible to folks with disabilities um, and, and for folks with disabilities. What are, what are some of those things? What are some tangible actions that people can take? Yeah, I think um, the most important starting point is education and awareness, um, starting with ourselves. Um, the reason for that is because a, a lot, you know, we don't talk about disability a lot. We don't learn a lot about it through education. And so there's a lot of information that's kind of missing. Um, because ableism is so ingrained in our culture, um, it is important to learn about disability culture and disability history and experiences of people with disabilities. Um, we also need to examine our own biases and assumptions in order to build an awareness of the ways that we unknowingly contribute to ableism or exclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of starting with ourselves is a really important place, Um, doing some self-evaluation. When we are advocating, though, it's important to remember the slogan of the disability rights movement, which is nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. And the history behind that slogan is a history of legislation and decisions that impacted the lives of people with disabilities without those people being invited to the table. And so Mm -hmm. if we are able-bodied and minded advocates, it is important that in our efforts, we remember that we're never speaking for or representing the disability community. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when we think about, um, you know, research that that we want to do research with people and not on people, right? So, yeah. so we want to work with people. Um, and again, you know, that's why education and awareness are really important. Um, and interacting with the disability community firsthand, I think that is really important mm-hmm. with advocates. You know, if you have an opportunity um, to interact with people with disabilities and kind of learn more about their experiences then that's going to help you have a better understanding that you can take with you into your advocacy work. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I I think about um, what you just said and it kind of reminds me of the common misconception that a lot of kind of burgeoning advocates have, which is that their job is to go out to speak for people. Mm -hmm. And, and like you said, it's about, Um, advocating with folks instead of advocating for. And so much of that requires that you actually communicate with people with those identities, that you build those relationships and build those coalitions together um, and, and let them take the lead and, you know, ask what they need from you and then follow up with those things. And so, so often people think that they're going to stand up on a podium and they're going to speak for somebody else. Um, but, but usually as an, as an ally and as a person with privilege advocating for people with marginalized identity requires, you know, that you're the person in the background who is, um, 
helping make sure that they have that place to speak for themselves. Um, it's about taking a backseat and about creating opportunities for folks with marginalized identities to have a voice in a place where they might not have had it otherwise. Yes, that is so true. Um, that's I think that's really important, particularly among the disability community, because again, you know, those narratives have historically been silenced. And so <laughs> as an advocate, we want to foreground the narratives of people with disabilities. You know, we want them to speak for themselves um, and, and we want to be in the background supporting those efforts. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, okay. So since we are specifically a higher education podcast, our primary audience, um, knock on wood, if anybody ever listens to this, <laughs> is uh, faculty, staff, and students. Um, can, you, can you speak to what this looks like in higher education a little bit? Um, what are best practices for faculty and staff when it comes to advocating specifically for students? Yeah. Um, faculty and staff play a huge role in students' growth and development. And so the recommendations I made earlier about education and awareness would also apply here. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also important for faculty and staff, you know, because they have um, such a big role in the design of the campus or college experience, it's really important for them to design with accessibility in mind. Um, Mm -hmm. So course instructors can be sure that their curriculum is inclusive of the experiences of people with disabilities. Um, You can do this by including works um, from scholars with disabilities or Mm -hmm. using curriculum that includes positive representations of disability. Um, Classroom and co-curricular experiences Um, should also plan for access. So we want to think about things like the physical accessibility of the space or the accessibility of any materials used, communication access, et cetera. Um, You know, we really want to design under the assumption that people with disabilities are here. You know, they're participating in whatever it is that you're doing. And so instead of waiting for them to come and ask for something that meets a need, we just want to already assume like, hey, people with disabilities are going to be participating in this. So let me make it as accessible as I can on the front end. Um, Mm -hmm. And understanding universal design for learning is also important here. Because we often have these narrow or predetermined ideas about how students can demonstrate their learning or complete a certain assignment or activity. And these ideas tend to be based on ableist perspectives. So Mm -hmm. universal design encourages us to think about ways that we can still accomplish our learning objectives, but in a more accessible and inclusive manner by being open to alternative ways for students to engage, represent their learning, and express. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would also just add, you know, don't ever underestimate the impact of empathy and respect. Many Mm -hmm. students struggle to even ask for accommodations or talk to faculty or staff about their needs. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, students still see faculty and staff as kind of authority figures. And so anything that you can do to create 
a safe and welcoming space and to demonstrate openness to working with students is going to go a long way um, with, you know, with advocating for students and helping them to feel more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think of, uh, so when I worked at Safe Zone, I would have a lot of faculty who would come to me and be like, I don't know how to express to my students that I'm a safe person for them to come talk to. And one of the easiest tips that we always had was, you know, there are lots of ways that you can help clue people into that without having to have an explicit conversation. And it's about things like posting, um, you know, things in your office space that demonstrate that you're interested in those topics or including uh, intersectional and diverse, you know, topics and readings in your class and, and things like that. And so there, there are lots of ways to demonstrate to students that you're a safe person to come talk to or that you're somebody who um, is going to be interested in creating an accessible and welcoming classroom environment that don't necessarily involve having a long conversation with the whole class or putting people in a position where they have to approach you to find that information out. Absolutely. And I think faculty in particular have a really easy built-in way to initiate that because every um, course syllabus at UA at least is, you know, that there is an, an access statement that talks Mm -hmm. about, um, disability and accommodations. And that's just kind of a built-in way for faculty to take that time to say to the entire class, Hey, I want this class to be an, an accessible experience for you. Absolutely. Um, and if you have a need, I, you know, really want to talk to you about that. Like, please come and talk to me so that we can see how to make this inclusive. Um, so I think using those kind of built-in opportunities is also very important. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, okay. And then what about students? So when students are thinking about uh, being an advocate or an ally for their friends and classmates, what are some ways that they can do that? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, educate, advocate, support. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as students, you are going to witness your friends and even family members make disrespectful or uneducated comments or voice, Mm -hmm. you know, an ableist assumption that they carry. Because again, we're we're human, you know, and, and we do these things. And that's an opportunity to start a conversation and share a more inclusive perspective that will hopefully have a ripple effect. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think that is really important. You know, a lot of times students may feel like advocacy may have to look like this big grand gesture, Um, Mm -hmm. but there are so many ways that we can advocate just on a day-to-day level, you know, as we are engaging with other people. Um, So that's an example of one way, um, you know, even demonstrating person first and respectful language, you know, as you're talking Mm -hmm. to other people. Um, Another thing, too, is, you know, as a student, like when you have an assignment where you can choose a research topic or maybe a community group to work with or someone to interview, consider how you might incorporate disability into that um, Mm -hmm. so that you know, it is an opportunity for you to learn more, but then you can also share that knowledge and experience with other people. Like that is also a type of advocacy. Um, 
And if you're working with a student group or a student organization, thinking about accessibility or how you might partner with another student group that focuses on disability or diversity um, can be really important. And just listening, you know, it's so important to listen to other people and their experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think those are all examples of very like tangible and accessible things that students can do um, that, that are considered forms of advocacy. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's really, really helpful. And especially, um, speaking to that idea of advocacy doesn't always look like a grand gesture. Sometimes it's a small, a small comment, a small correction, um, or, or just modeling behavior that, you know, is respectful and appropriate, um, because all of those little actions, even though they don't perhaps feel as heroic as, as uh, I think a lot of people think that advocacy should mm -hmm. feel. Um, those, are, those are often the things that make the most difference. Yes, um, yes, totally. Cool. Okay, and then along with this, being an effective advocate, I think, it, you know, we talked about how it requires understanding the perspective of the people you're trying to um, advocate for. But when we're talking about an identity that is often invisible and erased, in our popular culture, that can be difficult to do. It can be hard to find the place where you can educate yourself. And so how can listeners find stories and examples of perspectives of people living with disabilities? Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is really important because what we tend to see is that, you know, the erasure, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. it's, it, we tend to see that you know, people with disabilities have been erased from media representations or the representations are problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a lot of times people with disabilities are portrayed as villains or the, the quote, freak show um, mm -hmm. as having superpowers because of their disability, or maybe they're portrayed as like a charity case or a cause for inspiration. Um, mm -hmm. Stella Young does a great TED talk about inspiration porn. Um, mm -hmm. She kind of um, coined that term. And so we have to be really careful about media representations. And it's important to think critically about how disability is portrayed. So even if you are um, listening to something or watching something or reading a news headline, you know, that talks about disability, th think mm -hmm. critically about that. You know, how is disability being portrayed here? Um, is, that's a great opportunity to, to kind of use some of that education and awareness. Um, mm -hmm. one documentary that I would highly recommend, it was recently released on Netflix and it's called Crip Camp. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a combination of footage from people's experiences at a camp in the seventies that was specifically for people with disabilities. Um, but through that camp experience, these relationships, long lasting relationships were formed. And some of these people went on to become leaders in the disability rights movement. And so it chronicles mm -hmm. that experience, but it also chronicles the Section 504 sit-ins and mm -hmm. the fight for access to be acknowledged as a human right or a civil right. Um, so mm -hmm. it is a fabulous documentary that um, because it's on Netflix, you know, I think a lot of people would have access to that. 
Um, yeah. There's also PBS um, has a documentary on on the same topic called Lives Worth Living. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, a great way to kind of get some perspectives on um, the real life experiences of people, you know, who, who were fighting in the disability rights movement. Um, mm-hmm. There are a few like sitcoms and television shows out there that um, that I think are are doing good work. Um, one example is Speechless on ABC. Um, it's certainly not without critique, but one of the mm-hmm. things that it has been praised for is casting an actor um, with a disability to portray a character who has a disability. So, you yeah. know, historically, um, Hollywood has used able-bodied actors to portray people who have disabilities. And so we're, we're kind of getting away from that. And, um, the show does raise some important issues like physical accessibility and and the whole concept of like inspiration porn. And, you know, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm not your inspiration just because I have an impairment. Um, Freeform also has a show called Switched at Birth that uses um, actors who do have hearing impairments um, to portray characters with hearing impairments. And they did, Mm -hmm. they aired a full episode in American sign language, which I think is is pretty unique. And so, so I would definitely check out those. Um, But then I, I, there are several books that I would like to recommend as well. Um, Okay. For people who are working in higher education, I would strongly recommend reading um, Jay Dolmage's 2017 book titled Academic Ableism. I think that it is mm-hmm. it is really important for anyone who works in higher ed to have exposure to that content because it does help us think more critically about how what we're doing either enables or disables. So that's mm-hmm. a really important read. Um, I would also recommend Eli Clare. Um, and it's C-L-A-R-E, um, who is an activist and writer whose work includes poetry, several books, also a blog. Eli identifies as a white, disabled, genderqueer person. And so therefore writes from intersectional perspectives, which I think is really important Uh as well. Um, And then there's a couple of memoirs that were recently released that I think are really good. Um, Judy Human is a disability rights activist who is featured in Crip Camp. And Mm -hmm. she recently released her memoir titled Being Human. And then there's also um, Haben Gurma, who is Mm -hmm. a disability rights um, activist and the first deaf-blind person to graduate from Harvard Law. And um, she also did some work with the Obama administration as well. And her memoir Mm -hmm. is titled Haben, The Deaf-Blind Woman Who Conquered Harvard. And so any of those, I think, are they're really accessible texts. Um, and I think would just be great reads for anyone who's, who's looking to better understand, um, the experiences of people with disabilities. Awesome. Yeah. It's a a lot of wonderful suggestions. Um, and for those of you that are listening, if you want to access any of these, uh, especially as we're stuck at home and looking for things to read (laughs) and watch, um, I will post, uh, I, I will post the list in the show notes. Um, along with links where, you know, web links are appropriate. So you'll be able to find them there. Um, so they'll be, they will be provided. Um, 
great. And then, yeah, in, you know, in previous episodes, we've talked about the importance of people with privileged identities, viewing that privilege as a tool they can use to advocate for others. You know, I think it's, it's really common for people to feel like they're supposed to be ashamed of their privilege, that they're supposed to feel guilty about having it. Um, and that, you know, that creates, I think, discord between communities um, who experience marginalization and, and or various levels of marginalization and privilege because people with privilege feel oftentimes as though they're being made to feel guilty about something they can't control. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that I'm trying to do with this is to kind of turn that on its head and uh, create trend and promote a culture in which people with privilege view that privilege as a tool they can use to help others rather than something that they need to feel, um, feel guilty or ashamed of. Because we, we shouldn't feel ashamed or guilty for having privilege. That's not something that we control. But as people with privilege, so personally, as somebody who is presently able-bodied, able that is a privilege that I have. And it's important as an advocate and as an ally that I be aware of what that means for me and what that means for the people around me. Um, and so, yeah, in, in looking into that, how, how can having privilege be a tool mm-hmm. for promoting accessibility for other people? How, how, how is this true yeah. for accessibility advocacy? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I agree with, with everything that you just shared. And I think that, you know, the thing about privilege is it tends to be hidden at mm-hmm. first. So you know, because, you know, for example, I have white privilege and because Mm -hmm. our society is constructed in a way where white is the norm, it can be very (laughs) easy for me to, to forget that I also have a racial identity or that I also, um, carry a whole set of privileges that, probably I wouldn't even notice if I wasn't Mm -hmm. looking at it, you know, and, and doing some examination about that. And so I think that is the thing about privilege is, you know, it's not something that we chose. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, you have it or you don't. And so what's important is it, it's not meant to create this sense of guilt, but rather this sense of awareness into, mm-hmm. oh, wow, you know, there are these experiences that I have based on this mm-hmm. one part of my identity um, because of how society is constructed. And having an awareness of that can be very important in our advocacy efforts. And that's the thing, too, about um, ableism is that, you know, those of us who have ability privilege, we probably don't think about that. You know, it's probably not on the forefront of our minds because that type of privilege is often taken for granted. And that's why it's so important to think beyond individual attitudes and behaviors because that's definitely a part of it. But the thing about ableism specifically Um, and really all of the isms, is that they are systemic. You know, they are ingrained into our institutions. And so in our advocacy efforts, those little things that we can do on a daily basis can kind of start to dismantle that um, just by calling attention to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of our listeners may be familiar with Peggy McIntosh's writings on white privilege and male privilege. 
And there's um, a similar version of that um, disability activist, Melissa Graham, um, does kind mm-hmm. of a take on that on her blog where she's produced this ability privilege checklist. And so some of the examples are things like, I can attend social events without worrying if they'll be accessible to me. Or I can go shopping and most of the time reach the things that I need without assistance, (laughs) you know, just kind of these things that we take for granted on a day-to-day basis, but that just having Mm -hmm. the awareness of it can really help us think differently and almost see the world differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And so particularly for for able-bodied and minded people who are advocates, I think it is important to acknowledge the privilege that we have because of our disability status. Yeah. And, and knowing, knowing that you have that privilege and what that means for you and what that means for other people provides us with a lot of opportunities to, to create a more accessible world. Absolutely. For folks. If you, if you know there's a problem, then you can look for a solution. Right. And, and, and that's, you know, empowering to us and empowering to other people too. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, so if folks want to get involved in uh, groups and organizations on campus that advocate for people with disabilities, how can they do that? Yeah. So um, there are a few student organizations um, that exist. One of them is MADDES. It's Um, Mm M-A-D-D-E-S. And it is an ADHD peer support group. Um, One of the things that we um, didn't, we haven't really highlighted so far is that the majority of um, disabilities do tend to be invisible, which means that Mm -hmm. you, you know, just by looking at someone or interacting with someone, you may not necessarily be able to identify them as having a disability. And Mm -hmm. definitely on our campus, that is what we see is the majority of students with disabilities have invisible disabilities, ADHD being a great example of that. Um, mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to, to throw that out there as well, just as we're thinking about disability and, you know, how it may present, a lot of times it doesn't present in a visible <laughs> um, or apparent context. And so um, yeah. there's also some student organizations that focus on mental health. Um, mm-hmm. And then one of the newer organizations on campus is Eye to Eye Mentoring. And they work with secondary students who have ADHD or learning disorders. Um, So those are some great student groups that exist. Um, Faculty and staff who are interested in enhancing visibility and support um, could form an affinity group through the Faculty Senate. That's kind of Mm -hmm. something that the Faculty Senate has really been promoting recently. And then there are also opportunities to work with Crossing Points, which serves students with intellectual disabilities, Um, ACTS, which is a program for students on the autism spectrum. And then we Mm -hmm. also have the state organization called the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program. They are housed on campus. Mm -hmm. And so all of okay. those, yeah, all of those groups um, would, you know, they they work with volunteers and students. And so um, great opportunities to get involved. I would also add that disability is often absent from diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in programming. Mm-hmm. So if students, um, you know, are involved with any DEI groups, 
or efforts, definitely there's an opportunity there to think about ways to incorporate disability and access as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a really powerful position to be in too. If you are one of those student leaders who's involved in these types of programs on campus, when you're thinking about who to partner with or who to collaborate with, you know, one of the things um, that we always do, uh, like when I'm creating a program or, or working on putting forth one, is I'll reach out to student organizations that I think would be interested in the program and um, ask them to collaborate. And for folks who are involved in DEI efforts, one thing to remember is to actively seek out those student organizations and those possible collaborating groups who do work in this topic and to ask them to come be a part of, of what you're doing. Not only because then you can help ensure that what you're doing is accessible and you can get some support for your program, but you're um, just by kind of offering a seat at the table and, and asking people to be a part of what you're already doing, um, you're creating opportunities for folks to learn more about those issues and to learn more about people in our community who, who have a different experience, which is supposed to be what the point of DEI is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that that, you know, that is really important for coalition building too, mm-hmm. you know, among among groups. And so, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. And then uh, last, but certainly not least, um, if there's someone listening who has a disability and wants to learn more about accommodations and resources for themselves, um, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, so, I would say contact our office, you know, um, we're the office of disability services. We're happy to talk to people who, um, are not sure if they have a disability or if they would qualify or even need accommodations, you know, we're happy to kind of have those conversations. Um, anyone is welcome to reach out to me to ask additional questions or discuss things further. Um, Lizzie, you can provide people with my email address. Um, And then also our website has a lot of information. Um, Some people kind of prefer to start there before um, having a conversation with someone. And so if that makes you more comfortable, we've put a lot of information on our website about disability and accommodation and campus resources. So definitely, um, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, We also have, you know, students who contact us to interview us for different um, like class assignments or Mm -hmm. um, instructors who will ask us to come to their class and talk about disability because it, you know, relates to like their topic that week or something. And so we're happy Mm -hmm. to, um, to do those things as well. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, Yeah. And for everybody listening again, all of the links and books and TV shows and, and everything that uh, Brittany has told us about today, I will post in the show notes and in the description. So you'll have access to them there. Uh, But yeah, Brittany, thank you so much for being here with me today. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to make sure that you say before we go? I don't think so. I feel like, um, I I mean, I was just so excited to share this information because it's it's important to me and I really care about it. But I feel like um, we covered a lot of bases and I just really Mm -hmm. appreciate um, you having me and you including this topic because it is, you know, so important and oftentimes neglected. And so, um, yeah, I really hope that this reaches people and that, um, you know, people listen to the podcast and leave with 
just a better understanding, you know, or, or an idea of, of something that they could do. Brittany, thanks again for helping me put this episode together. I always enjoy getting to speak with you, especially when talking together means we get to have conversations about advocacy and social justice. To our listeners, thank you as well for joining in today. And don't forget to reach out to Brittany and her colleagues at ODS to learn more about how your practice and interactions with others can be more accessible. As always, if there's a topic you'd like to learn more about or a person you think we should speak with, you can send your suggestions and requests to me via email at easmith11 at ua.edu. If you're listening in today and you appreciate the content we're putting out, don't forget to give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by the Women and Gender Resource Center at the University of Alabama. The mission of the Women and Gender Resource Center is to address gender inequity and foster a community that values social justice, safety, leadership, mentoring, education, multiculturalism, partnership, and research. This is accomplished by gender-related outreach, advocacy, and support to individuals and communities of all identities. If you'd like to learn more about the programs and resources our office provides, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, wgrc.sa.ua.edu. (laughs) 